Where we are in our travels through the Gospel of Matthew is a pretty dark day. In fact, one could make the argument that the events that have transpired at the end of chapter 7 reveal to us the darkest days of human history. From the fall of man, when Adam and Eve sinned, when they fell short of the glory of God and successive generations since have followed, God promised to provide a Savior. All the way back in Genesis 3, we find a reference to the seed of the woman, a Savior, to save man from his sin, to provide man access back to his heavenly Father, in which sin had restricted and limited. For generations, that had been the expectation, the anticipation, looking for this Savior that God would send. And he sent his son, Jesus. And in spite of the miracles that Jesus performed, in spite of the wonderful works that he did and the sermons that he taught, aside from the life and the example and that testimony that the Word indeed became flesh and dwelt among us, that Jesus revealed to humanity the heart, the love, the purposes, the intentions of God. In the greatest tragedy ever, what did mankind do? They crucified him. And they nailed him to a tree. Jesus hung on a cross for six long hours. And then at the end, when he sensed death creeping, we know this for he declared, I thirst. Jesus then said, for all to hear, to telestai, that is, it is finished. And while earlier he had declared, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the end, Jesus with the final breath, said, Father, that restoration occurring, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. As we read, upon Jesus' death, a rich man, a disciple, by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, goes to Pilate, and he pulls some political strings in order to get the body of Jesus so it could have a proper burial. See, Joseph of Arimathea had recently carved out a new tomb, a tomb there in the city in which nobody had ever been laid. Expended great wealth to do so. Being a disciple of Jesus, Joseph decides Jesus needs a proper burial. Now, he can't do it on his own, and so he recruits, again, according to the Gospel of John, a friend, another disciple, a man by the name of Nicodemus. Joseph brings the linen cloth. Nicodemus, we're told, brings about 100 pounds of spices for the burial. And these two old men come to the cross as Jesus is hanging there. And they lower his body. And they carry his body to this tomb. And they delicately take the time that they have left, which was short, for 6 o'clock at dusk. We would have entered the holy day. They clean his body. They commit about half of the normal, typical, traditional burial process. But what must that have been like for these two men? To leave the tomb, right? Think about it. Covered in Jesus' blood. To pick out the thorns from his brow. To wash his body. To come home and try to get the blood off your hands would have been challenging enough. The testimony of Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus. 
Matthew provides for us at the end of chapter 27 a little bit of insight into some back workings that none of the other Gospels provide. For while the disciples had forgotten that Jesus had predicted his death, foretold his coming resurrection, Jesus' enemies were very aware. And so they go to Pilate, and they petition Pilate to set a guard outside of the garden tomb so nothing nefarious could take place. Pilate gives permission. This happens. So there is a garden tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea, very public, public records of it. There is a Roman guard placed there. The chapter ends letting us know that some of the women that had been disciples of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Mary his mother, Salome his aunt, they'd followed at a distance. They noted where the tomb was. Their intention after the holy days was to return at the beginning of the week to finish the burial process. Again, no expectation of resurrection, continuing their grief. Verse 1 of 28, we read that after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, and so this is early in the morning on Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Another gospel account informs us that there were more women present in addition to these two that Matthew references. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Again, you've got to get the scene in your mind. The sun is just rising over the horizon. It's crisp. It's a spring morning. You have a group of ladies that are coming to finish the burial process. Again, another gospel uh, author tells us that part of their conversation and their curiosity was what to do with this big stone that had rolled across the entryway. No doubt, they probably assumed that the soldiers that had been uh, posted outside to guard would give access would help. And yet as they approach this morning, there's this great earthquake that occurs. The soldiers, these Roman green berets, these men armed to the teeth, they're so freaked out and horrified, not just by the earthquake, but by this angel who then appears from heaven and rolls back the stone. They fall down like they're dead. They're petrified. They're caught in their fear. We're told that as then the women are approaching, these soldiers flee. They run at such a sight. This angel, I love this angel, by the way. I think of this angel as being pretty sassy. You get that? I mean, this angel comes from heaven. Now, what a job. What a task. I mean, you've been waiting centuries for your call. For your, you've been practicing your routine. There's the, the day is going to come, and it's going to be my job. Not only will I roll the tune, revealing to humanity that Jesus isn't here but has risen. I got this declaration. There's going to be soldiers. There's going to be women. I got this. Which we know he's sassy because when he's done with it all, what does he do? He sits down on the rock. He's just chilling. He's the sassy angel sent from the Lord. These soldiers flee and the women approach. 
Now the angel introduces, do not fear. Why? Because they're freaking out. You would be too. And when you read through the scriptures and you see the, the, the presence of angels, I, I run into a lot of Christians that are like, man, I would love to see an angel. Are you sure? <laughs> because when you read through the scriptures, most of the time when an angel shows up, it's accompanied by the three words, do not fear. I just want to be in my room one night praying to the Lord. Lord, just may an angel appear at the end of my bed. You'll pee yourself. <laughs> like, I'm not sure you want the warm, fuzzy feeling of an angel. You go back through the Old Testament, when angels appeared, they often came with swords. Not harps, but swords. Intimidating. So this angel appears. His countenance was like lightning. Wasn't lightning, it was light. Matthew's using descriptive terms. His clothing white as snow. His guard shook for fear. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know why you're here. You're seeking Jesus, right? And not to be confused, the one that was crucified a few days ago. Yeah, they laid him here. But he's not here. He is risen. And then I love the fact that the angel doesn't just want the women to take his word for it. In fact, the angel issues an invitation that has been issued to all of humanity ever since in regards to the resurrection of Jesus. Come and see. Inspect for yourself. Now, please understand that the angel didn't roll away the stone in order to let Jesus out. It wasn't as though Jesus had been resurrected at some point over the last few days and is there pounding on the door. No, the angel didn't roll away the stone to let Jesus out. He rolled away the stone to let humanity in. To see that the most radical event in human history has indeed occurred. He is not here. He is risen. Now, the way that Matthew frames all of this is keep in mind the flow. We have no doubt where Jesus' body went from the cross. We know he died. We know he breathed his last. We know he was dead. And we know what happened to the body. Again, we have an official record, an accounting. We have numerous eyewitnesses. You have Joseph of Arimathea. We have his tomb. We have him procuring the body under order from Pilate. The enemies of Jesus don't dispute this in any way because they come to Pilate themselves and say, hey, we know where the tomb is. We know it's Joseph's. We know Jesus' body's there. We're concerned about, again, some type of theft or some type of conspiracy taking place. We're afraid that the disciples might come and steal the body and create some hoax that he's now resurrected from the dead. Skipping the fact that the disciples are nowhere to be seen at all. Last time we saw the disciples, the A-team, they were fleeing the garden. Were they at the cross? No, except for John. Were they with the women? Did they come to the tomb? No, it was left to two closet disciples to take care of the body. The disciples aren't there. They don't take care of Jesus' body. Like the, the, the notion that the disciples were even in the mind space to do something like this is nuts. Not to mention they're all fishermen. The enemies of Christ put a guard at the tomb. At least 16 Roman soldiers. Now, if Peter gives us any indication, do you think any of these fishermen or tax collectors, as Matthew was, do you think any of these men had the, uh, the chops 
to take on 16 Roman soldiers? I mean, Peter goes after a little kid with a dagger in the garden. He can't even hit him square, cuts off an ear. I mean, these guys are not equipped to mount some type of a rescue mission. And so Matthew presents for us concrete evidence. Jesus died. His body was procured by Joseph of Arimathea. We know exactly where it was laid. We have numerous eyewitnesses. The enemies of Jesus confer it. And there's a guard placed. You see, the great question one has to ask when examining the resurrection of Jesus, where'd the body go? Where'd the body go? Jesus died, was buried in a tomb. That tomb was sealed and it was guarded. An angel arrives and guess what's not there? A body. What happened? And again, the angel would say, don't take my word for it, but come and see. Examine the evidence of the resurrection. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to present for you some apologetical argument for the evidences and proofs of the resurrection. You can study those things on your own. If you'd like resources, I can point you to them. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most historically corroborated events of human history. Again, all the enemies of Christ would have to do to end what happens next is present a body. And in that moment, the charade is up. And yet not only could they not produce a body, but at no point throughout human history have we produced a body. In fact, we have a substantial number of eyewitnesses that did encounter a body. It just happened to be alive. The resurrected Jesus. This invitation, come and see the place where the Lord lay. But I must, I must mention why this is important. Why the resurrection of Jesus is significant for you and I. And again, we could do a whole Bible study on this particular topic. But let me frame it in just a simple way. If Jesus died... And there's no resurrection. We're not here this morning. <laughs> In fact, this book isn't here. None of us are Christians. It all ends. The gospel of Matthew would just be a tragedy. But the gospel of Matthew wouldn't exist. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is the receipt that the cross and its payment was good. And received. You see, Jesus died on the cross for a very particular reason. It was to save you from your sins. But the only evidence that that really happened would be from the new life that resulted. The resurrection of Christ. See, the resurrection of Jesus, it not just validates everything that Jesus said, but it validates who he was. That he was not just a moral man, but that he was the son of God. And it validates that Jesus indeed provides eternal life. If he was dead, how or what assurance would we have? Now, there is a reason that Jesus is the only religious leader or world leader that ever staked his entire claim on the evidence, the proof of one singular event. 
You see, friend, if you are trying to figure out who Jesus really is, and you're trying to figure out the implications of Jesus and his ministry for your life, if you're trying to figure out if he's a savior or what he saves you from, or once you die, if there's something else, if you're trying to figure out any of that, the first place you need to come is a tomb that's empty and decide what happened. These women come to the tomb and they find that it's empty. And the angel continues saying, go quickly. And tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And ran to bring the disciples word. And as they went to tell the disciples, behold. I have these three words highlighted. Jesus met them. Jesus met them. You know, your testimony can have all kinds of details. But it's not a testimony if it doesn't include the three words, and Jesus met me. I was on my way to this or that and Jesus You know, it's hard to meet Jesus if he's dead. (laughs) But he's not. And again, if you engage in the response, the invitation to come and see, there will be a moment, I promise, where Jesus, you will meet these women. I love the phrase, behold, and Jesus met them. Jesus was dead. And then when the angel pronounces he's not here, he's risen. And again, at that point, they could have gone. They believed They were assured. But what happens? Jesus met them. He revealed himself. And what's his first word? The first word of the post-crucified Christ is rejoice. Rejoice. Take joy. And so they came and held him by the feet. And they worshipped him. What a scene. You know, the appropriate response to anyone that meets Jesus is worship. What else is there to give to the resurrected Jesus but our praise, our adoration, our honor? And they held his feet and they worshiped. Now, on a side note, I think it's a bit of a tragedy as of late that Christianity has somehow become at odds with feminism and women's liberation. Please understand that you will find no culture on the planet, on the planet, that has done more for the liberation of women and the equality of women in society than a country or a culture that has a Judeo-Christian underpinning. Christianity is not the enemy when it comes to women's equality and women's rights and women's freedom. Why Christianity has become the target, I have no idea. Try Mormonism. Go after those guys. Or Islam, if you dare. (laughs) But Christianity, understand, so you have this, this incredible event occurring. You have the resurrection of Jesus taking place. The entire breadth of Jesus' person and his ministry is based on this event. The evidence of this event. 
And who are the first people that Jesus reveals himself to? Who are the first people, the first disciples? The women. Who in that culture, by the way, their testimony wasn't admissible in court. These were the last, quote, eyewitnesses that you would have chosen. Why these women, why were they first? They had never forsaken Christ, had they? They had been there at the cross. They had followed Jesus throughout his ministry. They believed. Now it's true that when they come to the tomb, they were not expecting resurrection. But oh, their hearts leaped when it happened. To be included, not just in the pronouncement, but then Jesus, the angel says, you go tell the disciples that he's risen. And then Jesus meets them. And their response is they worship. They grab hold of his feet. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Please also note, again, against some of the common misconceptions that swirl about the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection was clearly not just one of a spiritual nature, but according to this text, as proof, was physical in nature. Again, there was no body in the tomb, meaning that Jesus experienced a literal physical resurrection, that the DNA that existed within his physical being came back to life. Now, Jesus' body, by the way, is much different than it was before. He can teleport, he can walk through walls, he can appear, disappear. I mean, it's pretty sweet. And he can eat. How cool is it that you can teleport and still eat? I can eat a steak and still go through a wall. I love it. That's exciting. And no matter how fat I get, I can still fly. Jesus ascended. We're told that Jesus is the first of the resurrection of the dead. That if you want a glimpse into resurrection, you look at Jesus. Which is why I believe in a bodily resurrection of some kind. Now, how much of your DNA does God need to resurrect you? People will say, oh, well, you shouldn't be cremated. You get cremated, then what happens? <laughs> well, then don't organ donate. Don't be an organ donor. Wouldn't that be bad? You know, you've distributed your organs, and then rapture happens, and like, boom, my liver just disappeared. And I mean, cremation is one of those things where all it's doing is is expediting the natural processes. Like if Jesus could take a few loaves and a few fish and multiply and feed 5,000, what do you think he really needs to make you back to you? Just needs a little DNA. Now how cool is that? That you exist in a code, right? A code. DNA. So I believe in a bodily resurrection, but it's not as though that Jesus was somehow like floating no, in fact, Jesus was recognizable. They grab hold of his feet. He was physical. He would break bread. Interesting that when he broke bread, they recognized what? The scars in his hands and feet. I don't know if we'd carry our scars to heaven or not. Not quite sure what our bodies look like. I'll probably look like just like I am. This is the best I've looked in a long time. I'll, I'm okay with that. 
But we are told that for all of eternity, we will see Jesus. John, when he sees him in Revelation in the future, his description. And I looked and behold, he was like a lamb who was slaughtered. It's cliche, but true that the only man-made thing in heaven is the wounds that Jesus bears for all of eternity as a reminder of his great love for us. To see the holes in his hands and his feet and his side. To see the scars in his face from where the beard was plucked to the wounds on his brow from the crown of thorns. What must that be like? I think in that moment we'll grab him by the feet and we will worship him. And we'll have no problems doing that for the rest of eternity. Now, according to Matthew's account, we're told that you know Jesus sends them to the disciples. Go to Galilee, I'll meet you. Now, Matthew doesn't do a comprehensive examination of all of the resurrection appearances of Jesus. He, he, his, that's not his intention. And we'll get to his intention at the end because, again, he's presenting Jesus as the king. So one story's good enough. Now, if you are interested or you, you enjoy this type of thing, let me give you kind of a rundown. And it's hard to put them in, in, a, in a, a clear sequence. Some of them overlap. You know, again, we're not given like a, a two chapters, the appearances of Jesus. Uh, but kind of let me give you a flyby of the appearances of Christ. You can jot them down if you're interested. So whether it was before these women encountered Jesus in the garden or after, we don't know. We have some women that encounter Jesus in the garden. Mary Magdalene is not with them. She stays at the tomb. So we don't know if, if as she's staying at the tomb and these women leave, that Jesus appears to the women and then Mary Magdalene, or Jesus comes to Mary Magdalene first. There's a story where Jesus comes and she thinks he's the gardener until, she speaks to him, until he speaks to her. And then she recognized it was her Savior. So you have an appearance to Mary Magdalene as the, garden, as the gardener, and then these two women that were with her, we, which we've read about. At, at some point, very quickly, Jesus will appear to two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus. You find this in Luke 24. And then when they return, there's a reference in Luke 24 that in, indicates, we have no record of it specifically, that Jesus at some point in this appears to Peter. We don't have a record of it. But in Luke 24, it seems to indicate, again, from the, the disciples' testimony to these men that went to Emmaus, that Jesus has appeared to Peter at some point. Jesus will then appear to ten of the apostles. It was a bummer for, for Thomas. He had to run to Chipotle to get burritos for everyone. So while he's not there, going out and getting grub, Jesus appears to ten. And then you have the famous where Thomas is like, I have to see for myself. And so what happens? Jesus is like, I'll oblige. And then he appears to uh, the 11 apostles, which include Thomas. That's in John 20. Jesus will then appear to seven apostles on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Again, we have that recorded for us in John 21, the famous story where they're fishing. And Jesus is cooking breakfast on the shore. He says, how's the catch? They hadn't caught anything. They're terrible fishermen, by the way. You know how often we get the record of them out fishing and not catching anything all night? And Jesus, you know, famously does what he had done earlier in the ministry. Hey, why don't you cast it to the other side? Here, that works. And immediately they know it's the Lord. And Peter's like, I'm not waiting for sure. He dives in to swim. And, and they eat with Jesus. He cooked them breakfast. We then have Jesus appearing to 11 apostles on a mountain in Galilee, which we'll look at in just a moment. 
it's possible that in that same scene, there are more than just the 11, that there could be as many as 500 brethren. And in that moment, 1 Corinthians 15, 6 tells us that. And at some point, Jesus will appear to his half-brother, James, who writes the, the, the epistle of James. James had rejected his brother, wasn't present at the crucifixion. Imagine living as Jesus is your big bro. I mean, could you ever live up to the expectation? And yet at some point in all this, Jesus appears to his brother. That I would have loved to have seen. What's up, bro? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you know, like, he appears to James. We're also given a reference, Acts 1, verses 3 through 8, Luke 24, about Jesus appearing to the apostles, eating a meal with them. And then ultimately, he'll, he'll ascend from the Mount of Olives. Again, that's recorded in multiple places. Jesus, in Matthew's account, tells the women to go to the disciples and say, go to Galilee, he'll meet you there. He appears numerous times between the two. Now, Matthew adds some details that are significant. Again, only Matthew adds them. Verse 11, that while they were going, behold, some of the guard, these were the men that were guarding the tomb, that fled. They were Romans. They came to the city, and they report to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders, chief priests, they consulted together. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, so a bribe was paid, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole, away, stole him away while we sleep. Now, now that's, that's a problem right there. Like, that's a problem. You have Roman soldiers charged with guarding a tomb. You know the one thing Roman soldiers couldn't do? Fail. Like that was their job. They were commissioned to do this. So they come to the chief priest and like, yo, <laughs> we did our best. But this angel came down, stone rolled away. He wasn't there. He was like lightning, white as snow, the whole, the whole shebang. So we're coming just letting you know we did our best. But we're going to tell people what has happened. Now, this is not, this is not good for Jesus' enemies, for the religious leaders. And so we're told that they bribed the soldiers to make up the story. Now, the story itself places them in peril. You want us to say what? You need to give us a lot of money for that. So a bribe is paid. And then they kind of counter. They say in verse 14, if it comes to the governor's ears... We will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And, and then Matthew adds for us kind of a historical note that this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Like this was known. Like understand something about the climate, the culture, what's happening. Everyone knows the body's gone. And then you have Jesus appearing to people all over town, and not just in Jerusalem, but also up in Galilee. Like, it's not as though that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and kept a low profile. He's popping up all over the place. And the rumor mill's going, hey, did you see Jesus? I saw Jesus. Later on, uh, Paul, when he's talking about the resurrection, the significance of the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection, the validity of the resurrection, Paul will point to the fact that, hey, over 500, in addition to the 11, plus James, and then me, all saw him. Some are still alive. Don't take my word for it. Go talk to him about it. 
Like, understand that if we had over 513 or 14 witnesses to an event, and we went before a court of law, that is overwhelming eyewitness substantiating testimony, even though it's circumstantial. Again, the proofs of the resurrection. This was known. And then, and then you have Pentecost. And you have the birth of the church and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and people speaking in different languages. And this thing is born. And then so many of the priests came to know the Lord. None of this was in secret. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. I wish we knew what mountain. Go to Israel just up the hill from Capernaum, you can sit at Mount Arbel, which is one of the highest peaks in the region. You can see all of Galilee. It's beautiful. I'd like to think maybe it was there. You go, you visit, you can sit there. It's gorgeous. But Jesus meets them on a mountain. This was an arranged thing. In fact, you go back to, to Matthew 14, verse 31. This was an appointment. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. I wish Matthew gave us more detail into what they doubted. Because I don't think it was the resurrected Jesus. They're on the mountain. Jesus is with them. I don't think the doubt was about the resurrection of Christ. I think the doubt was probably what comes next and the implications for themselves. I'll give you an example of maybe some evidence of doubt. We find it in Peter, don't we? See, Peter had encountered the resurrected Jesus, had had an individual powwow with Jesus, had talked to Jesus. But Peter had failed Jesus, had failed to live up to his own promises to Jesus, had blasphemed Jesus. And in spite of these interactions with Jesus, over and what is Peter dealing with? I'll never be good enough. I'll never be good enough. I'll never be able to live up to it. I never loved Jesus like Jesus loves me. And so there's a scene where, where Jesus has an, an exchange with Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? And Peter was honest. He says, no. <laughs> I phileo you. Like Peter understood, I know how much you love me, Jesus. But I'm very aware that I'll never be able to love you the same way. And three times Jesus asked him. And then finally he's like, it's okay, Peter. I hope you know you'll never be able to love Jesus the same way Jesus loves you. I know that's a weird statement, isn't it? But it's a true one. Like Jesus' love for you will never waver. It'll never falter. He'll never cheat. He'll never betray you. He'll never speak ill. Jesus' love for you is as pure as any love could ever be. Jesus has no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends. And Jesus exemplified all that is agape love. I am so glad that Jesus doesn't ask me to love him the way that he loves me. Because he knows I can't. And if we're honest, I'll love you with all that I am. But Lord, I know what I am. And I'll fall short all the time. 
And yet what sustains us is not your love for Jesus. What sustains you is his love for you. And never, ever forget that. Especially when you fail to love him. And you play the fool. That is his grace that is sufficient. If, it's, if your relationship with God is based on your promises, you will fail. Your promises will fail. If it's based on your sacrifice, it will fail, for your sacrifices will fail. If it's based on your works or your goodness, it will fail, for you will fail. But Jesus has based his relationship with you on none of those things. He's based them on his work and his sacrifice and his goodness and his love. And he just asks that we would enjoy it and be washed by it and engage it. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And man, have some doubted ever since. Don't doubt. And Jesus came and he spoke to them. And he said, and this is famously, it's called the Great Commission. I'd call it the King's Commission. Within the context of Matthew's Gospel. This is the King's Commission. Before he goes to heaven, he's leaving a commission to his followers to his disciples. Please note that this is not the great suggestion. It's the great commission. It's a commission of the king, the resurrected king. The commission that he gives to the followers that were there and to every generation since of believers, of followers. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Now, that's a good starting point. What I'm going to... I have all authority, and I'm bestowing you a commission, and that commission comes with power. There's power behind it. There's authority behind it. There's dynamite behind it. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Go, therefore, and make disciples. The way that that is translated into our English is a bit, I would say, misleading on one end and overly challenging on the other end. And this is what I mean by that. So often this becomes the clarion call for missions. We're to go into the world. Well, some of us are. What about me? I don't like to leave Winder. Or Bethlehem. I kind of like my area. Like we kind of, I think sometimes we place this, the Great Commission, as the clarion call for missions to other parts of the world, go into the world, make disciples, baptize them, teaching them, go. And you're like, well, I'm kind of here to stay, so that's for them. <laughs> that that's for like a segment of the Christian community, those with the calling. But that's not what's being articulated by Jesus in this word go. Because again, the idea is like, I got to leave, go, and do. 
But what if I I don't want to go? I want to, like, stay. Can I still do? How does that work? Like, in the original translation, a better translation into English, go would be as you're going. Like, see, it's in an active tense, a present active. It's as you're going. As you're going where? Anywhere. Wherever. Like, the better way to read this is, is as you're going to work, make disciples of the nation, baptizing them in the name of Jesus, teaching them. As you're going to work and you go through the same drive through window at Mickey D's, that that person has been ordained for you to go to. As you're going. You see, what's being articulated in this commission It's not something I go to do. It's something I'm always doing presently wherever I go. Oh, missions. Well, I got to go to Haiti to do this. No. Go to work or go to school or go to the ballpark. Wherever you're going, be making disciples, being a demonstration of Jesus, telling people the good news of Christ, living your life. And more than what what you say, exemplifying Christ by your love and your joy and your peace as you're going. You see, this is an active commission for every believer, whatever your world is or your nation. As you're going down the hall to the nursery where they've pooped and they're screaming, Your job is to make disciples of that nation. It's a different way of thinking about it. Or as you go from the first tee box to the second tee box to the third tee box, make disciples of the other three random dudes that they've got you playing with. It's a different way of thinking, isn't it? It's active. It's continual as you're going discipleship Matthew John echoes it well saying if we wrote everything there was to write about the life and the ministry of Jesus there's not enough volumes that could that could fill so much that Jesus did that we don't have recorded Matthew though writing with an intention And that intention is to present for us Jesus as the king. A king that lived, a king that died, a king that rose, and a king that is coming again and has left his disciples with a commission. It's not an accident that Matthew ends with the king's commission. As you are going, tell people about me. Because the king will come back soon. So Father, Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Matthew.